today I have the incredible pleasure of bringing on the show a woman whose story I first heard several years ago. We met at a women's retreat where she was there to assist and to provide incredible food. And at one point we were talking about what we do in our life's work and I was sharing a little bit about my self-defense profession and some of the things that I teach. And when she heard what I was up to, she said, oh girl, do I have a story for you. She sat down and told me her story and I just about fell off the bench that we were sitting on. And when you listen to her story, I think you will understand exactly why. It's an incredible story from an amazing woman about her encounter with somebody who went on to become one of the most notorious serial killers in the United States. So here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur, and today I have the enormous pleasure of bringing on the show an incredible woman with an amazing story to tell. Dasha Bogdanova is a 67 years young woman, and she's a native San Franciscan now living on the coast in Half Moon Bay in California. She has a second degree black belt in judo and actually started studying when she was eight years old. She's an energy medicine practitioner of Quest, I believe it's pronounced, Reiki, and she's an intuitive healer. Dasha leads and guides women in their own processes through sacred goddess dance, belly dance, song, music, cooking, metaphysical stone and jewelry making, women's retreats, and goddess empowerment through embodying the divine feminine energies in ceremony and ritual. She also works with women to heal deep mother wounds within their journey. Dasha believes that love is the most powerful path and forgiveness can be the doorway to unconditional understanding and compassion. She is an earth goddess that loves the universe as a whole. And I can tell you that being in Dasha's presence is an amazing experience. And so is being on the receiving end of her cooking. Welcome to the show, Dasha Bogdanova. Thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm so, uh, I'm blown away by your introduction. Thank you so much. Uh, you as well are an amazing woman. And I'm so pleased and happy to be here with you on your podcast. Well, thank you. It has taken us long enough to get it done because I think we started talking about this recording your story four years ago, maybe. I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> And here we are. <laughs> and we finally made it. So yay for podcasts and having good recording equipment. So now we can finally get your story recorded. Before we dive right into that, I'd like to ask you a couple of quick questions. You ready? Sure. Go. Yes, I am. Go right ahead, please. Okay. What is one thing that you dreamed about doing or experiencing as a youngster that you still haven't done yet? Oh, that's a good one. Hmm. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that I've done and still am in process of doing all that I love to do. Uh, really serving with a full heart 
uh, however that may look and with my healing or cooking or jewelry making or just speaking with people. Um, one big thing I knew I wanted to work in healing at a young age. So I started quite young with healing. So I have taken that forward. And um, working with women, I knew I saw so many women around me that even at a young age, and in my family and in friends, I met many women that were not quite uh, formed yet. I don't know how to put that. They had many um, challenges in their way. And I wondered how I could help with that. And as I grew, I learned that uh, my self-defense training, my healing, uh, natural abilities really came into flow. Also, uh, having a mother and father that really uh, loved me, supported me, and um, were very natural with the way that they were uh, with, with myself and my brother. Uh, those also came into play. So I feel that I'm living uh, those things now. You know, they're just, they just keep unfolding as I follow Gaia's divine guidance and inner, inner wisdom. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that's a good answer there, but I, I do feel that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm living uh, those dreams. And, um, my big dreams are really to be of service to this earth and to people, especially, uh, you know, to women and also to men healing, you know, helping them to heal through adversities, PTSD, you know, all kinds. There's a myriad of things that I've helped, uh, men and women with, but bringing peace and joy. I, I feel I was born with a, you know, my son sign is almost directly over the center of my mid heavens. So I've, I've kind of come in with this joyous heart and uh, that's led me through my lifetime and helped me to uncover all the things that I'm able to do and, and to be of service with. I love that Dasha, because so many of us as children have these ideals and these big visions and these big dreams. And then that sort of fades away and drops to the side and we end up on a different path. And then, you know, maybe later on in midlife, take a look and go, Oh gosh, you know, that's not really what I dreamed of when I was a kid. You know, it was, we put it away as being unattainable or foolish. And you've been able to craft your path and create your journey completely in alignment with what it was that was calling you even as a child. That's pretty unusual. I think. I have a lot of confidence in in um, what comes to me within, you know, what comes with within to me from a divine source and also connection with the earth. So I've always been that uh, that person, and I'm glad to see it just unfolding and blossoming every day. Yeah, 67 years young, you know, I'm on the 67th level. And uh, I'm, I just keep learning more things and more things as long as I stay grounded in that connection with Earth and the divine. No, that's great. Okay, so if you couldn't make baklava, if you couldn't make baklava, <laughs> what would you make? <laughs> well, you know, my uh, grandmother came over from um, southern Russia, almost Mongolia area, and she brought with her uh, her piroshki recipe. So that is something that really um, connects me to my ancestors 
And I feel them with me. I feel my grandmother, my mom and dad with me every time I make that. I don't do it very often because it's bread dough. It's deep fried. You put usually beef, but I use turkey and onion and uh, eggs in there and pepper. So my family have been asking me lately, when am I going to make that again? It's been, you know, it's been a little while. So it's funny you ask that question. I really, you know, I love making that because there's a connection to my, to uh, my ancestry through that. And I feel, I feel that that's a, it's a really delightful time. I can actually feel my mom and dad with me while I'm doing that. Uh, my favorite things though are vegetarian cooking. I really like it. And I should say preparation because a lot of times you're not cooking it, you're preparing it. For me, that is like, I feel is uh, the secret to a really healthy life. Uh, I don't eat four-legged, and I'm not eating really poultry anymore, so I'm changing everything up. I do eat fish, but I'm changing everything up to go to a total vegetarian diet. So I love preparing vegetarian foods for people. Sometimes they think, oh, it takes less time. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) It takes much more time to prepare things that are tasty and um you know so i love organic cooking and uh, organic organic vegetables especially so that that you know between the piroshki and the vegetarian cooking it's a it's a tight race there (laughs) i love them both (laughs) oh that's great and i just want to put in a plug here anybody who runs retreats for women and wants to have an amazing culinary taste food experience, you ought to talk to Dasha because everything is done with love and you can taste it. Oh, I always put heart into everything I do. If I can't put my heart into it, I'll probably just be resting at home. (laughs) So (laughs) I'd rather, I'd rather not cook unless my heart is totally into it. So thank you for saying that. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I love your cooking. Okay, are you ready to dive in and uh, and get towards y- your story? Yes, I am. Okay, sure enough. Okay, what was it like being a youngster in San Francisco in the sixties and seventies? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> um, that's that's a mouthful right there. Just saying that. Um, really interesting. The city of San Francisco is like no other city I've been to. But, of course, I haven't been to New York or Chicago and any of those bigger cities. But San Francisco is very eclectic. It has many different ethnic backgrounds and religious beliefs. So those people are really what makes that city, you know, so so unique and so special. And during the 60s, it was a real time of change. I lived in the Mission in San Francisco which was, uh, we lived beneath our means, as my folks would say. So the rent was less, but we could afford more, but we used that money to do other things with them. So we were never without. We, we weren't in poverty or anything like that. But we lived in, in an area that was uh, uh, predominantly Hispanic, but we have, you know, sprinkles of all kinds of different people in that neighborhood. Everybody knew each other. We looked out for one another. I didn't go to the high school in my district, which was Mission High School, because back then it was very dangerous. And, um, you know, there were gangs and stuff like this. And, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to deal with that, even being a judo girl. I just, you know, 
uh, we're more about self-defense than um, going out and being offensive, you know, and, and having to be in that every day. Although uh, I had to watch behind my back, you know, when I'd come home off of the bus from uh, school, uh, it was, uh, you know, you really followed and uh, viewed as a young a woman, young, you know, young girl, you can really feel the eyes of uh, would-be attackers, you know, following you. So you got very, I got very clever about how I would get away from those types of things, you know, and talk about scenarios, you know. Yeah, definitely. I lived with it, so I experienced it, and I learned how to, you know, just be smart, be protective, and watch where I went. Although I didn't go to Mission High School, I did go to Polytechnic High School, which was across the city in the Haight-Ashbury. So um, that was for academics, you know. Really, I, wa- I went in for academics. I didn't know that that was going to be the summer of love when I appeared, you know. And um, me being a very disciplined and good judo girl and good daughter, I didn't do any drugs. I didn't smoke pot. I didn't drink. Uh, I didn't carouse around with... Um, groups of people that were questionable. I was, you know, I was like a good girl uh, and and a sweet girl. So um, being in Polytechnic um, was a 70% black high school, and we got really great history, and we got the real history of what's going on, which some of the other schools didn't have. There, um, the connection between the people at that school was amazing, um, I always felt I was still very shy back then, but I felt very invited into everything I did because I was kind and, um, you know, I was respectful of other people. In uh, taking those buses, you know, across city, you get to see everything. You know, you go through the whole of the city, you go through Market Street and all kinds of different people, all kinds of different areas. Uh, the art there in San Francisco was absolutely incredible. As I was being raised even younger, they made sure that we went to symphonies once every two weeks. So it was really um, performance art and art were um, really up front. You could tell that in San Francisco. It was everywhere. And if you've been in the city of San Francisco, you know uh, how charming it can be and how absolutely beautiful people can be in that town in the 60s and 70s. There was big change. Uh, a lot of gentrification happened in the mission, which was really sad. A lot of, um, you know, our real Hispanic areas were bought up by people with bucks, a lot of money, and they chased them out of there and redo them and start renting them out to, you know, students from colleges that weren't even in our area or away from our area. So we lost a lot of that color, you know, that that vibrancy that was there. So it was a really changing time in San Francisco during the 60s and 70s. Uh, There was nothing for sure. Uh, The one thing that was for sure is that I had judo classes every single day. I was always at the dojo, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, you know, for open practice. Sunday was our only day off, and that was time um, our religion was our family. You know, we come together. So those were things that uh, I had stable stability in my life. And uh, I just, uh, you know, the music. I mean, uh, Carlos Santana used to play 
you know, block parties like four blocks away. And I could hear that music from all the way down into our neighborhood, to our street. I live between 20th and 21st on Treat Avenue, which is near Folsom and Van Ness. And that's, it was quite a, a busy, busy neighborhood. Carlos Santana would come and teach the kids next door to us how to, they had a little garage band. So he'd come and help them out and learn how to play timbales and drums and guitar. So we would see a lot of people that were on the up and coming, you know, in the hood, you know, in the neighborhood, being just being themselves. And, you know, that was so beautiful to see that there were people that were very interested in the youth of San Francisco and bringing them, you know, more information, more art, more or connection to so many different people. Just music, dancing, we'd have block parties, you know, they'd close down the, the block for four blocks. And, uh, you know, there'd be people like Carlos of Santana playing and others. And, you know, you, and people would just come out with their tables and they'd have food on the tables and, and uh, you know, drinks for the kids. And it was just one of these things we're together. You know, I felt like uh, living in the city, there's this unspoken code that we watch out for one another. And uh, a real San Franciscan is kind, will give you directions. And there are so many uh, San Franciscans that have moved out of the city. So it has changed quite a bit since the 60s and 70s. But um, I I adore it. I don't want to live there anymore (laughs) because it's just too busy. And now I'm um, in Half Moon Bay. It's so different, uh, but much safer in many, many ways. And that's uh, one of the reasons I chose to live outside the city. I don't have to be so, I'm still on my toes, you know. I watch what I do, but it's not as in, um, intense as it was in the city, uh, you know, to really watch what was going on around you. I love it. I go in for concerts. I go in to uh, see friends and some belly dancing events are still happening there. And, you know, there are teachers that I have that live in the city. So I'm able to go in for those things, too. And the parks, Golden Gate Park. I mean, I went to the park every day because I was at Polytechnic. And we were able to tease our stadium was across the street. Golden Gate Park was right there. So every day we'd have lunch in the park. I'd go with my boyfriend and my friends. And, you know, it, it was just like an amazing um, time. I feel like I was really had a, such an education in that city. And that's what brought an understanding for other people, uh, their ways and respect for other ways. And uh this deep connection, you know, of being kind and generous with one another. So um, the 60s and 70s were quite busy and quite beautiful and ever-changing. I guess that's how I put it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what an incredible environment to spend what we call the formative years. You know, so, so vibrant, so diverse. What an amazing gift that was for you in particular, given the kind of person that you are and the work that you really were about to start doing, that was such a great sort of foundational environment for you, I think, just because of the experiences that you had. Yeah, I mean, you were saying it was quite an education and it was an education way beyond the four walls of a school. 
That's really cool. Oh, oh yeah. I feel the city was my school and, uh, everything that I did was a part of that, uh, that teaching, you know, that learning. So what actually got you into judo? <laughs> that's a, that's a, I'll try to keep it short. Uh, well, my brother, uh, at the age of five, while he was crossing in a large intersection at Folsom and Van Ness, uh, was not supposed to be going that way, but he followed another boy who was a year older and they were running across that intersection and he was struck by a van and he was knocked out of his shoes and into the uh, nearby intersection. I mean, that was horrible enough. He was unconscious for five days, eventually came out of it. Uh, but, you know, he couldn't remember alphabet numbers, which was easy because he was so young that we could re reteach him those things. Uh, but it was his coordination after being, you know, he was in a cast all the way up. He had a fractured skull, uh, a fractured collarbone, broken hip bone. So he was in a cast down all the way one side, all the way up on one side and halfway on the other. So he was like with bars. Um, they're like, you know, bars that they put into the cast that we can turn him over because he was basically incapacitated. And after they removed the casting, his coordination really was off, you know, and he would be teased and it was just sad, you know, he was doing his best here. I mean, he'd been through a horrific thing. So long story longer, my uncle Bill on my father's side, his brother, he was my closest uncle. He met, was working for Damo Victor in San Francisco and he met there. My sensei would be sensei Ben Palacio, who was a painter. Uh, you know, he painted the place and, um, my uncle did the wire work for, he worked on the Apollo mission, all kinds of different things like that. So he did the more intricate work. Well, the two of them met at like around the lunch table and they got to be friends. And he was sharing with him what happened to his nephew. And over a period, you know, by the time Fred was out of the cast, my uncle shared with him how his coordination was off. And my sensei said, well, you know, what's really good for coordination would be judo. You should get him into judo. That'll totally help him to get into his body and help him to heal even more. And so that's what we did. Uh, we went, uh, we went to dojo. Uh, oh my gosh, it was right near. San Francisco General Hospital. Uh, my sensei had a little, he had just moved from Hawaii with his three kids and his wife. And they just moved. They lived up on the hill in San Francisco. It was above like the 280 kind of area. And down the hill uh, is General Hospital. And near there was this small little dojo that he had. It was his first dojo on the mainland. And uh, that's where we went. You know, that was his dojo. So my brother started judo to help with that coordination problem and all this. And, and two days later, I got on the mat. And then after I got on the mat, my sensei had two daughters and he brought them and put them on the mat. He said, now that there are girls, we, we're going to just, you know, we're going to keep this going. So that is, uh, you know, that's how we got to judo. That's why we started was because of the, uh, 
the injury and healing process for my brother. And, uh, you know, uh, bless his heart that, you know, it just, you know, I'm sorry for the injury and the pain and suffering he went through. And we did too with him, but it brought us to this whole other community and, uh, not just community, but family. So I started at eight. Fred was six. Yeah, he was six and we were pretty young and, you know, uh, my sensei Ben Palacio and, uh, Akana sensei, his, uh, elder and helper in the dojo were our teachers to begin in judo. And he taught uh, Kodokan judo, which is Japanese style, very respectful and very strict on how things were done. So everyone was safe. And, uh, you know, you learned all your exercises, of course, your stretches, and then you learn how to fall and you learn how to roll. You learn how to kimmy and, you can't uh, go into, um, you know, competition or randori, as we would call it, until or throwing somebody else, just learning how to throw somebody else until you learn how to fall yourself and until you learn how to roll. And um, my brother, uh, <laughs> amazingly enough, he learned it, uh, the rolling part much quicker than I did. It took me about three months to really trust that process of, you know, Everything in judo is about the roundness. You know, you, you, the rolling is round. The movements are round. And um, learning to trust that took me a while. And once I got it, it's like, I could do it today if I had to. <laughs> uh, but the, um, the process was absolutely fascinating. And we were going Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. And uh, we were in that dojo for a little bit. And then my sensei got a larger dojo on 18th Street. And that was right in the mission. That was closer to our house. We could walk from 21st and Tree over to 18th. And it was Van Ness around there between Van Ness and Cap Street. And uh, we could walk. We walked to the dojo every day. Uh, I meant to say also that after Fred and I were on the mat, my brother Fred and I were on the mat for a couple weeks, my mother became very interested in it, and she got on the mat as well. So it became quite a family, uh, you know, a family thing to do. As we got to know our, you know, sensei and his family, we became, a, you know, a real family of our own. And um, those connections were uh, deep. We shared, you know, we talked judo for hours he could talk to you for hours but the teaching on the mat was absolutely something that went very deep for me and um, I remember being 10 years old and uh, our sensei would have us sit on the mat and meditate and he'd tell us to clear our mind of all thoughts and I didn't know what that meant at a young age you know I figured well it's imagination clear our minds of imagination so I just kept very quiet and he probably had, by the time that that dojo was at its fullest, we probably have like, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 people coming through there for, for, you know, learning, teaching and, uh, judo. Um, so by at 10 years old, I remember being in one of these meditations and lifting up out of my body, basically just totally flying up, you know, and, I kind of flew around the dojo and uh, then 
I kind of said, well, what's outside the door? And I went and looked at the door and I went, no, I don't want to go out there. So I came back in and uh, I would make home behind my sensei's left shoulder. And I could see all the kids there. They're supposed to be very still. And you could see the ones that were picking their toes, picking their nose, you know, fiddling and fussing around. And, uh, you know, I would just kind of giggle. I thought I was just having, I was being using my imagination. Uh, and then my sensei would say, uh, which means attention in Japanese. And that, and I would fly literally, I could feel myself fly back into my body and, uh, come out of it. And my sensei saw that. He, uh, he recognized that, that, um, you know, I was being, uh, a very good Zen student there by really clearing my mind. And so that's when I started to, uh, really notice that there are many other things in life than just what you see. And, um, he, he took me under his wing. You know, he could tell after the, after our judo practices, he would ask me and his daughter to come work on his back. So she get on one side, get on the other, work on the back and, um, on his shoulders, whatever was bugging him. And, um, you know, we were learning at the same time. Uh, he mentioned that my hands were hot. He says, you have hot hands, you know, you're a natural healer. So from then, by the time I was 12, he was taking me with him to different healers. And uh, along with judo that I was learning and the Zen of that judo, he was teaching me and taking me to these different uh, healers. And I was uh, receiving a lot of information. And uh, he'd ask me to show them what I knew. And I would do some stuff and they'd go, she's that healer, you know. She's, it's good that she's in judo because you need that discipline within in order to, um, to be a, a good healer, they would tell me. So um, I'm sorry, I'm just babbling on no, here. It's just <laughs> fascinating. It's just fascinating to hear all of these different strands. So... Yeah, I just, I love, I could oh, listen, yeah. listen to, you know, how you tell the story for a long, long time. This episode is being brought to you by the Born to be a Badass Prep School, the premier self-protection course that teaches you everything you should have been taught about how to be safe in the world as you were growing up, but weren't. If you're like me, you were taught how to cross the street and how to swim but probably heard very little, if anything at all, about the dangers you might encounter at work, in your relationships, or just out and about in the world. Maybe that's because your parents, like mine, didn't know what to teach you. Or maybe it was just assumed that bad things might happen to other people, but not to you. This is the program I wish had existed when my own daughters were growing up. Heck, it's what I needed to learn and never had a clue about in my younger days. The Prep School is an online program where you will change your mindset and learn how to make the most of your innate abilities to protect yourself. You'll learn what to look for and how to recognize potential dangers, what to do in bad situations, and how to manage fear. You'll discover how to tap into your body's natural protective skills if you have to fight and how to deal with the aftermath of an incident. Not only is this a virtual program that you can do from anywhere at any time, you get lifetime access to the content, access to my private support group, and you get a gift certificate to use towards one of my live hands-on training events that builds upon the prep school curriculum. 
get yourself over to www.cynthiajolicoeur.com slash prep school to learn more and to register for an upcoming session. As a listener to the Born to be a Badass podcast, you will save more than 60% on your enrollment by entering the code podcast when you register. I suppose we should probably move forward a few years to the time when you were helping in the dojo by doing the laundry and what happened. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was, uh, so we had a new dojo was up on mission street, almost the top of the hill in Daly city, which was upper mission. And it's a different feeling than being in the heart of the mission. Uh, you felt a little safer up there, <laughs> but you know, you got to watch out wherever you go. Uh, so I was, uh, the senior men were on the mat, you know, the black belts and the brown belts were on the mat and I was washing judo geese, you know, for sensei, which was something that I'd always do. We, our, our, uh, laundromat was three doors down from the dojo. It was right there. So I'm in there doing, uh, laundry. I think that I had taken, I had some stuff that was dry and I was holding the geese and, um, there was nobody else in the laundromat. It was very small. It's like a, a bank of dryers on one side and then a bank of washers down the center. And then there was a way to move around those washers. You know, you could get in and out through that area and a little table to the back. And somebody, uh, a gentleman, I'll call him that, walked into the laundromat. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, I've been on the mat with men for a long time. And I was uh, 20, 20 years old at this time, I believe. And uh, this was like in probably 1970, 71, I'm thinking. He walked in and I felt uneasy. You know, I just felt like mm, there's something up with this. And so uh, and I looked at him and he made eye contact with me. And I'm going to tell you, if you've ever, you know, when they say the eyes of the devil, you know, evil, I say, that is kind of what I saw. And I didn't know, it didn't look like it was drugged out. It just looked evil. That's the only way I can really describe it. And he wasn't a tall man. He was a, a generally short man, you know, dark Hispanic. And, um, I started thinking right then, okay, you know, I'm going to get out of here. How am I going to do this? I'm going to move this laundry basket and put it between me and him. Uh, so I could just go around that bank of washers and leave and run out and go to the dojo. Uh, we're brought up with, you don't use your judo unless you absolutely have to. It's a defensive thing. So in Getting away from things is also a defensive uh, art into its own self. I put the basket between us, and uh, he looked at me, and I looked at him, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, what's going on here? I'm thinking to myself. And he kind of smiles at me in a really weird, creepy way, and he reached his hand out to try to touch me, and I blocked his hand, and pushed his hand away and I said you know you don't you don't touch women like that you don't know and he tried to touch my breast and I really knocked his hand out of the way and I said at that point I said I'm out of here 
You know, I got to get the heck out of here. So I had that basket. I pushed it right there. I went to get around and leave and I slipped on some wet, you know, some water that I guess was on the floor and down I went. And, uh, we're taught in judo, you ever fall, you never fall flat. You always make sure you got a, you know, a knee underneath you. So you have some type of, you know, leverage to get away. And before I could actually get up and leave, he was on top of me. He was on my back and he put his arms around me and was struggling with me. I was struggling with him to try to get out, you know, and I was, I was panicked. Judo kind of went right out the window in a way, you know. I've never been in that kind of situation, although I've been on the mat. I've had wrestled with guys that are huge, that are three times, four times bigger than me. Uh, but this was a whole different experience. I couldn't get out. And I was, I was turning away from his hole to try to get out, you know, as most people do. And uh, I couldn't get out. So I, I started screaming bloody murder. I just, I screamed the people upstairs from the laundromat. They had music going. I heard them turn off the music. Nobody ever came down to check on me. Okay. They never called the cops. They didn't do anything. They just stayed out of it. I screamed. He put his hand over my mouth and I, and I got his hand. Somehow I squirmed my head off of his hand and I screamed some more and he conked me over the head with something really hard. I felt myself totally blacking out. And in that blackness, I could see, oh, God, it gives me goosebumps all over, and the creeps, too. I could see a newspaper, the Examiner or Chronicle. I can't remember which one it was. And here was front-page news that a young woman is uh, has been murdered in a laundromat, you know, the whole Nine yards, all the stuff that, um, you know, where it took place and they don't know who did it. They can't find who did it and turn to page three. And, uh, you know, this is like in seconds turns to page three. And then there's a whole description of what he did to my body. And I mean, it was very descriptive to the point, you know, I almost got sick. I just, I was like at that point. I said, oh, no, you don't. Some people say they see their lives flashing before them. That's not what I saw. I saw what was coming, what was going to happen, you know, to me personally. And I said, oh, no, you don't. And I and all of it, I shook it off and I and I came into an awakened state. And without even thinking, my judo kicked in. I turned into his hold as you should, <laughs> I turned into the hold. I stood up and he was shocked, absolutely shocked. And he started to come at me and I went for him. I said, I am going to kill you. I am going to kick your ass. How dare you? And just with fervor. And he started to back up. His eyes got really big and I went for him and he just took off running. He could see, I must've looked like a wild woman because he just, I scared the shit out of this guy and he took off running and he ran across the street and to where I don't know. I started to go after him and I go, wait a minute. You know, my common sense says he hit you over the head with something that could have been a gun. You don't know what he's got. So I went, I went into the dojo 
I don't know where he went. I just know he, that guy crossed the street and went into the neighborhood. I went into the dojo immediately and I should have screamed rape or murder or something, but all the years of judo and, you know, being on the mat since I'm eight, I was teaching at the age of 11 and, you know, other students, it's been inbred in us that when the seniors are on the mat, you don't disturb them. How stupid was I? I went and got, you know, my, my mom and uh, one of the other parents was on the side. I told them what happened. I tried to call the police to get them out there. The operator on the phone was of no assistance whatsoever. She gave me the number for the police. She wouldn't connect me because uh, I wanted people out there to find this guy. Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm, my nose is red, you know, my cheeks are red. Uh, I've just been through something absolutely, and I got a lump on my head that is killing me. That bump grew to be like two, three inches huge uh, after a couple of days. I look onto the mat, and uh, my fiance Gary, who's a judo boy, who I, you know, we met when he was 12, uh, he'd been in judo forever. He looks over and he goes, What is wrong? And he comes off the mat, and I tell him what happened. And he goes back on the mat, he goes, Sensei. And he says, blah, 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 blah. And, oh, my gosh, it was like, boom. There must have been 20 guys on the mat, all in white bees, and they flew out of that dojo. Some of them put on their slippers. Some of them didn't. And they went all over that neighborhood canvassing. He, he got, they all got the, the exact description of what I said. I knew how tall he was. I knew what he looked like. And what weight he was, and they went everywhere. They knocked on doors. Um, they never found him, okay? They never found him. And um, that night, you know, I had made a call to the police department. The police department says, well, are you in any danger now? I said, no. And they said, well, come in tomorrow and file a case, a case complaint. I said, okay. I went in the next day, and they showed me all these books, you know, of uh, offenders. And, uh, you know, because I lived in the mission, I know what people look like. I know that one person doesn't look like the other, no matter if they're black, Hispanic, or Asian. Everybody looks different, but I'm a San Francisco girl. I can tell that difference because I'm raised there. And, you know, I, I look through this book and I see these guys in there that look similar, but they brought them in for like smoking a joint. And I told him, get me uh, some pictures of rapists, murderers. This is what this guy was going to do to me. And they said, well, how do you know? And so I had to tell them that story. And most of the police officers just kind of, you know, put an eyebrow up. But one police officer said, I believe you. And so he brought out all kinds of books. And I looked through everything. I could never find this person. Okay, never. I went in for two weeks. Like every three days, I went in. And this one officer, he was a detective. He was absolutely wonderful. And uh, he was very good with me. You know, he was very understanding and he wanted to catch this guy. And there have been, because there have been other attacks, but, you know, that was happening in the cities back then. So I never found him, you know, in any of these uh, books, you know, these, uh, what do you call them, uh, mug shots, you know, never found that guy. Let's fast forward a little bit more. I'm married now to the guy who, Gary, who was on the mat, who came off. And uh, we're married. And 
Uh, we've got Katie, my little one, and she's like uh, 18 months old. And we're living in Redwood City. This is, geez, six, seven years later, okay, after this event happened. Uh, the news is on, as it usually was, you know, about 5 o'clock in the evening. And I uh, hear the reporters say, we finally caught him. And up comes this picture. And I go, that's the guy. That is the guy, you know. And, I mean, I was so like, holy crap, you know. This is like, and then they say his name, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. And he had been killing people and, I mean, terrible things that he had done. He went down to Southern California, and during the summer down there, nobody would leave their window or door open because that is the way he would get in. It was through any open door or a window. He would climb in. I was in a laundromat years ago, so that's easy access. I called in that night when I saw his uh, his face on the news and heard his name for the very first time. And when I called in right then to the police department, uh, the guy who was answering the phone, uh, operator said, lady, we've got so many calls on this guy that I can't talk to you right now, but I want you to call this detective and give him your information tomorrow. And they were flooded with calls. So I did that. The next day I called in and I talked to that detective and he said, you know, you would have been one of his very first victims. And he lived right around the corner from when that happened. So he was checking it out in his neighborhood because he could get into his little house and nobody would know. You know, he could easily get in there, I guess. I don't know. But that's how he was thinking, I guess. So uh, the officer told me that there were many other people that had called in. Some of them weren't so lucky. You know, uh, they've been abused, but they got away. But this was a mass, this was a murderer. And by the time he was done, I mean, if you've ever, if you ever read any of the stuff on Richard Ramirez, it will turn your stomach. It is absolutely the most horrendous things that this man did to other people. Unbelievable, unbelievable things. You know, even at the Palace of Fine Arts, which was one of my favorite places, he murdered a young Chinese couple there. He knocked the man out and he killed the woman in front of him when the man came to and then killed that man. I mean, this is like brutal, brutal, brutal stuff. So when I realized that this is who this is and I started to really research into what he had done, I just I couldn't even read some of the stuff. I just couldn't. And my husband said, just thank God that you're okay. Just give grateful. I said, oh, I am grateful. I was grateful back then. And I got away from that. I know what I got away from because of what I saw when I, in that blackout. So, okay, so now we're going to go even further years more, which was probably just 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. I'm working with women. I'm working with large groups of women, um, helping them through their processes and uh, one of my mentors says, uh, we're going to do work on forgiveness. And I said, okay. So we were doing work on forgiveness around men that have hurt us. And, you know, basically she's talking about relationships, ex-boyfriends, husbands, uh, brothers, fathers, uncles, this type of stuff. But she said, this is all inclusive of whatever you see. And the first person that came to me was that, was that person, was Richard Ramirez. 
And I said, Oh God, I've got to do forgiveness work on this person. And I, the only way I'm going to do that is I got to understand his journey. So I went and I found out his history and what he had been through as a child and the uh, huge abuses that he went through by his mother, by his aunts, by other women. And, uh, you know, just to say it generally, the crap that he had been through and uh, which made him so dysfunctional and so angry at women. I came into understanding how this person, this little boy, could be made into this. You know, he studied uh, satanic rituals later on in his life. There was a lot of crap that, uh, you know, that this was not a formed person. This was not a loved little boy. This was a person who was made abusive by his abusers. And I came, and he was in jail. You know, he'd been in jail all this time. Uh, when they caught him back in the, the early, um, I guess it would be the late 70s, early 80s, the late 70s. It must have been 79. I'm not quite sure. But uh, when I came into the understanding of what he had been through, there was something in my heart, you know, that really loosened. And I said, I forgive you. I forgive you because now I really, you know, and I got tears in my eyes right now. I had to come to that forgiveness for him. Because of what um, he had been made into, and uh, as as bad as it was, you know, I have a compassionate heart. So I really uh, went into that forgiveness. I said, "I'll forgive you because I understand your story. I will never forget what you did, and I I won't I can't forgive those actions, but I can forgive the person." And um. That was huge. I felt like my whole heart just cracked open. And uh, I said, I have to do this. You know, I just had to do this work. And uh, boyfriends and ex-husbands, yeah, I went through that process already. But this was something very different than I had, you know, never understood, you know, or had to. I didn't think I'd ever have to do this. So when I did that, a year later... I was at one of the retreats with Elizabeth Barton uh, that you have been to our retreat. And someone came up to me and they knew that story. You know, I had, they, I had shared that story with some of my close girlfriends and uh, my close sisterhood friends. And they, and two of them came up and said, did you hear what happened? That guy, he died. And I said, what, what do you, what guy? And they said, the guy that attacked you back in the mission, you know, and I, and I told them the name. They go, yeah. And I said, what? And they said, yeah, he died in prison. He was 51 years old, and they said it was of natural causes. I'm not so sure about that, because if he killed, murdered that many people, and you're in prison, uh, anything can happen, you know? So I wasn't sure about that, but I really, I went and looked. When I got back home, I checked that out, and, and sure enough, he had passed away. I don't know... If my forgiveness work for him was a part of that, I feel that we're all connected in some way, you know, um, universally. And he, how do I say this? I think that that forgiveness for somebody can move energy around them. And then he was able to go, you know, he was able to depart. And I don't know, you know, if he was murdered in prison or if he died, as they say, of natural causes. 
I just know that I did this work before he passed. And there was a reason for this work to come to me and for me to do this forgiveness work around him. And then I met you at one of the retreats. You came to one of our retreats and uh, you had asked, is there anybody who has been, I think you said near death experience in, in a violent way. And, uh, oh, definitely. I was like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> right there. And, uh, yeah, I guess it's been like four or five years now, right? So here we you are. Wanted, yeah. You wanted to get the story back then and we finally getting it now. And, uh, Wow. Yeah, just really an experience you never think you can have, let alone live through. So that just that teeny bit of judo, that teeny itty bit of turning into him and standing up and actually having the willpower to like, you know, well, nobody's going to touch me, you know, to go into that and say, I'm going to defend myself now. I don't know what I would have done, but I would have done it. You know, I would have thrown that guy so far. His head probably would have split open. Um, but it, it goes back to how did I get to Tito? Yeah, it was through my brother having this horrendous accident where he he could have lost his life, bringing us into Tito because he needed that. And then years later, you know, you never know how one little thing or one big thing can change the rest of your life and bring you to this small instance of reaction in a very natural way. You know, not in the panic. It didn't happen in the panic. Yeah. But it happened when that, I was like, oh, no, you don't. Yeah. That was, you know, when you first told me the story, I think the reason why my head was basically exploding is because as you were telling the story, you were talking about the things that I teach about in my classes. You know, you mentioned that when yes, he first yes. came in, things didn't feel quite right. You know, and I always teach about, you know, when you have a bad feeling about something, pay attention to it because it's there for a reason. It's not, That's right. it's not fooling you. It's, it's yeah, a warning yes. sign. You talked about how mm. in the moment, well, you came up with a plan, then it kind of went sideways because of the water on the floor, but you ended up in a situation where none of your training was accessible to you because being on the mat with a partner is not the same as having somebody actually trying to kill you. And that's what we teach about. Oh, like, yeah. Like yeah. The, the martial arts are right. fabulous. They're awesome. And they're not the same as what happens in a real violent encounter. And then you talked yeah. about that blackout point where you saw the newspaper and you saw the headline and then you saw the gory detail. And that tied into what we talk about in my courses of, you know, what would it cost you if you didn't do something? I mean, you just like articulated uh, exactly that. And then you had what we talk about, which is that indignation that hell no, you're not going to do this. It's not going to happen today. I mean, you literally <laughs> did that. Oh, yeah. And that was yeah. the transition point where then you were emotionally in control of yourself. Then you were mentally in control of yourself. And then you could tap into your skills, your judo skills. And you got up and yes. you tapped into that indignation <laughs> and that hell no. And we talk about predators. They don't like people that fight back, right? Because they, they don't want to get hurt. They don't want yeah. things to take too long. They don't want to get hurt. And what yeah. you what you did was you yeah. turned the tables on him, and he went, oh, shit. This was not the plan. Yeah. And he did. off I he went. I saw it on his face. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, that's why my yeah. head was yeah. exploding. The first time around, hearing your story was like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I talk about all the time. And she doesn't even know this is what I talk about. 
So it's I just. I know, I know. It was so perfect. <laughs> it was. And, and even when we're on the mat, our sensei would tell us now, you're on the mat, you're throwing this person. But if this was somebody that was attacking you, you would just l- let go of the gi and let them fly. But, you know, we had never really done that on the mat. So, right. yeah, I totally get that. You know, I'm, I think that what you're doing is so necessary and so important to not just empower women and girls, but to teach them how to be, you know, how to be alert and aware of what they're doing and what is around them. A little many girls that I've gone into the city with, they are just totally walking around like a victim. You know, they're, they're so open and being so stupid. They're not paying attention. So everything you're doing in that, in your uh, class, I think is just fabulous. It's powerful. Yes. Thank you. Well, I'm curious after that experience, did your practices and your habits change a little bit? How did this really affect you? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I didn't go to the laundromat by myself anymore. That's for sure. You know, right after that, it took a, a while before I actually got back into being a regular, quote unquote, you know, doing what I normally do, you know, with the dojo and with myself. And it, it was amazing to me that here I was in an area that I thought was so much safer than where I was in the mission being followed by predators all the time, you know, and looking out for myself. And, uh, you know, sometimes I would go to another house, to a neighbor's house, so they didn't know where I lived even. That was part of, you know, of just not letting people, letting these predators know where I, where I lived. But here I am out of that whole situation and into another. And I was just right there. I mean, it's like watching a TV you see, you know, or a movie, you see a woman alone in a laundromat at night. It wasn't late. It was probably eight o'clock, but it's still like, you know, it still kind of brings back that uh, thought to me that always bring a friend with you, always travel into, you know, bring somebody with you. Uh, it also made me really confident and bring me back to, you know, into my judo heart that just allow yourself to move, you know, as you learn, you know, try not to go into fear, try not to go into panic, you know, because that didn't help me. But definitely, I had to go through that experience to understand it, and Mm -hmm. to learn from it. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody else, you know, it was empowering. It it turned out to be an empowering experience for me. And I'm just, uh, I thank the stars, the God and goddess that I lived through that. And I have that natural bit of judo that just, it just intuitively just stepped right in. And, uh, but it does take that hell no, you know, you're not going to do this to me to really be in your body, in your element. And, um, yeah, that's what I felt. I'm like, Oh, thank goodness for that. Yeah. Uh, people around me, yeah, they just, uh, they kind of look at me, you know, I've had people ask me stories of this and that. And if I share that story, you know, their eyeballs are as big as eggs and they go, we know who that is. You know, we remember those years and we remember all the death that was surrounding this person. So to see you standing here in front of us telling us this story is like, you know, it's, uh, it's a success story. And I said, well, it's even more than that. You know, it's, uh, whew, 
uh, it changed my life, the way I view things and how I look at people. I'm very, I'm very set on looking at people in their eyes, you know, to see who they were. When I was younger, I'd walk down the street. Uh, you wouldn't make any eye contact with anybody in the mission because they took that as a sign of, oh, come on over and talk to me. Uh, whereas here I am in, a, in another part of upper mission. And that was the first thing I did is look at those eyes and I'll never forget them. You know, I will never forget that stare. And, um, I didn't have fear. I just had like, wow, this is evil, you know, in front of me right here. And, um, it just teaches you, you know, and as a result, I'm able to read people. I can see energy, um, you know, around them, like, uh, you know, sometimes I'll see, uh, if I see brown around a person's face, it's like, oh, they're full of shit. If I see gray around a person's face, I'm like, don't trust them. And if I see black around a person, it usually covers their whole body. It's like, that is evil right there. And so uh, <laughs> that's evil incarnate right there. So I feel that these experiences, you know, that experience definitely helped me to see that in in people more. So I'm able to, some people say it's aura reading and this and that. And I go, well, this is kind of a different type of aura reading. This is, uh, you know, when you got to be careful for yourself and watch out, you know, just watch out. <laughs> Something's coming. So uh, be prepared and be aware. So what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Um. Be more aware of where you're at, you know, uh, know your surroundings, know where you can, where it's safe. Don't put yourself in harm's way. If you, you know, I mean, if you have the choice, why would you do that? And don't be, don't be, you know, like I said, I see women walking around like victims. They're really not in charge of themselves. They're not embodied in themselves. Let's put it that way. You know, it's very powerful to have that. I think that martial arts is wonderful. I think it's absolutely that has helped me in more ways than I can say. The breathing alone, the exercises, these are things that I'm teaching women now that are not in their bodies. So a lot of that, that's not, you know, full on self-defense or, uh, you know, grappling is still being aware, bringing you into awareness within your mind, your body, your spirit, uh, really being uh, awake. I think, you know, many women need to know that, how to be awake. And um, martial arts is great. You know, it teaches you all that stuff, but it's really this other stuff of understanding that there is bad stuff out there in the world. And uh, you're not just walking around in a little bubble, you know, so be aware of where you're putting yourself and uh, who are you hanging out with? Are you putting yourself at risk? And um, those are the big things. I think that, you know, I've told young women that like, well, you're not paying attention. Were you paying attention when that happened? They go, no, I never thought that would have happened. Well, there you go. You weren't paying attention. No, you got to pay attention. I know I can talk because I was not paying attention. Uh, about, you know, having a buddy with me or bringing somebody with me. I think that walking in twos is really important. I know that in our neighborhood, in the mission, back in the day, when the little uh, 
Mexican girls would go to school. They were always walked to school and brought home from school by their aunties or their mothers. They were always had a guardian there to watch out over them. And as a young woman, I think we need to know we need to buddy up and uh, be smart. I don't know how else to say it, but uh, just be aware. Wake up. You know, it's not it's not going to be all roses for you. You know, just be aware of uh, your your surroundings and where you live, how you act, all of it. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate that a lot because a lot of people just assume safety and there's yes, danger when yes, you assume safety, you know, so. That's right. Yep. So one last question before we I, wrap it up. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Well, hmm. For me to develop their own personal power and courage, I believe that you've got to do your process work for the stuff that's in the way. You know the the uh, the self doubting um, coming into that or going through the process of whatever you've been through. I think it's really about um, gee, there's so many ways to say it too, but it's really about coming into who you are. However, that works. You know, for me, I had that confidence from a young age because I've been in my body. Uh, through martial arts, I'm in my body. And I realize that a lot of women are not. They are not, um, they're not aware of living in the body. And not about what it looks like and all that stuff, but really just being confident in who they are. That's really important to be confident. To be able to say, no, I don't want this, or yes, I do want this. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Wait, now, what did you say? I was going off there. Yes, yes, um, it does. Just how, how can women develop their own personal power and courage? I think that working, you know, it's all about confidence for me, because I was very shy at a young age, and really for me, it was about becoming confident with who, who I was, and really who I was. And what my, uh, my inner strengths were and, uh, my joy, my love, my sharing, my caring, my service were all parts of making up who I am, but also, uh, stepping into what I love to do and really stepping into it in a way where I was accepting of myself, no matter what. I believe in myself and, uh, I've raised my daughters to not you know, let other people talk down to them because they're older or whatever. It's like we're all here together. We all have confidence. So just to be confident in who you are. And also, I'm a, you know, I'm a bit of a goddess devotee. So I bring the goddess worship into some of the young women that I work with. They connect with those energies. And uh, we have exercises that we do, whether it's ceremonial or ritual, um, it brings them into a fullness of what being a full woman is about. And sometimes we are soft and loving and sweet. And other times we have to bump that up and be fierce lionesses and just really step into our courageous power. It is there. It's not uh, sleeping unless you let it sleep. But stepping into that, doing more of what feels natural, 
for each woman. And that includes learning martial arts. That includes learning how to walk, you know, how to move your body properly. It includes whatever may be their own paradigm. For some, it's yoga. For others, it's dancing. I do a lot of dancing and music. It brings me into that more connection, as I was saying, with the divine and the earth energy. I feel held by those energies in between the divine and the earth. And I'm in the middle like a conduit, like a copper conduit. And keeping those going constantly with a sort of prayer, if you will, living in that prayer, making your life that prayer, I think it's brought in more confidence for me as a person, as a woman, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a guide. It has helped me to become stronger in who I am by just simply realizing and connecting with myself and connecting with all parts of myself. The sweet stuff, the gentle stuff, and the fierce stuff, you know, the lioness, like I said, you know, Sekhmet is in the house, as I like to say. (laughs) When things get really rough, Sekhmet steps in and there's no question, you know. It's like, no, this is the way to do it, you know. um, No harm. I do no harm and I take no shit. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. <laughs> oh, that is that's gonna be my next tattoo. That's oh, perfect. Do, <laughs> do no, do no harm, harm but take no shit. But take no shit, yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's it. So I was gonna ask oh, you, great. like at the point when you reach the end of your life, what would you like to have put on your headstone? And I think that's just gonna be it is do no harm and take no shit. So I'm going to ask. Take no shit. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that will probably be, I'm going to have like a paragraph of stuff and that's going to be in there. You know? <laughs> um, uh, what she else? Lived with a full, she lived with a full and joyous heart, which she generously shared with everyone she came into contact with and was a great cook. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and a loving mother, loving wife. And loving uh, granddaughter, daughter and granddaughter, you know, the women in my, in my pantheon are very close. So that, uh, that there would be something about that on my gravestone also. I give thanks and praises to all my ancestors and I give thanks and praises to every single guide and teacher that has come across my path. And sometimes it might be a person on the street and you stop for five minutes and you have a talk with a total stranger for five minutes, and you change each other's lives. Just being open to being honest and truthful is uh, definitely will be on there. You know, truth will set you free. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Dasha Bogdanova, I have to say, this has been everything I was expecting and way more. So thank you for coming on the Born to Be a Badass podcast and sharing your story and your insights. And it's just been such a pleasure and an honor to talk with you today. Thank you. Oh, right back at you. Right back at you. Ditto, ditto, ditto. You are just amazing. And I'm so happy that we were able to meet all those years ago and are still in touch and are still in connection with this journey that we're on. I really just absolutely love you. Thank you for doing the work you do. It's so expansive and necessary and powerful. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Oh, thank you, Dasha. 
And I'm going to put your contact information in the show notes so that people can reach out to you because I imagine there are going to be some people who want to talk to you some more and find out a little bit more about what you do. So that's it for today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I've just really enjoyed, I always enjoy speaking with you. And uh, this has just been really lovely. Thank you so much for making something, uh, uh, you know, this uh, intense subject so easy and loving to talk with you about. Thank you, Sue. Oh, you're welcome. This has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Thank you for listening today. Stay safe and be a badass. listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.